It appears we will not be joined in our second segment today by either of the two guests we were seeking to bring you. Those would be author Sherry Holbrook Labatus. She's written an excellent book titled You Came Here to Die, Didn't You? Subtitled Registering Black Voters One Soul at a Time, South Carolina, 1965. 1965, Sherry Holbrook was an 18-year-old freshman at UC Berkeley and decided to get involved in the civil rights movement. The book she's written about her personal experiences is a good one, and we hope in the weeks to come to talk to her about it on this show. Another person we're seeking is Dean A. Cortapasi. Mr. Cortapasi took out a full paid, paid political advertisement on the Sacramento Bee yesterday on a subject that's one of our favorites, the huge scam going on to build a peripheral canal and uh, divert water from Sacramento's Delta to the San Joaquin Valley and dry areas of Southern California. His piece wasn't very diplomatic. It was titled Governor Pragmatis or Governor Moonbeam? The Boondoggle Backflip. <laughs> but uh, the content of it is something we agree with, so we hope to bring Mr. Cortapasi on the show in the next week or two. And uh, if you're listening, either of our potential guests, please give us a call sooner rather than later. Our listeners want to hear from you. So I think what we'll do on our second segment today is talk a little bit about science and medicine. We do a lot of science, but maybe not enough medicine on this program. And I guess we're going to throw in a bit of psychology in the mix. We'll start with a few articles we've been saving, including one from the September 25th edition of New Scientist magazine about happiness. Article by Dan Jones noted that doom and gloom are the order of the day across most of the Western world. Our economies are faltering, the cost of living is going up, and many people's real income is falling. For some, unemployment is a reality. He noted that if the pursuit of happiness is supposed to be one of our goals, prospects appear bleak. But if you take a closer look, it isn't that simple at all. In fact, economic hard times have little impact on how happy most people feel. The author notes that it would appear that we humans are built to experience happiness, and understanding why that is is helping us work out what enhances our feelings of well-being. This even points to ways we can adapt to cope with the hardships that this recession may bring and keep us smiling whatever happens. He goes on to note that one thing is clear. Once life's basics are paid for, the power of money to bring happiness is limited. In fact, it can be positively harmful to our sense of well-being. He cites what I think is a rather fascinating study done in Belgium, where researchers asked a group of people to taste a piece of chocolate in the laboratory. They found that the wealthier members of the group spent less time savoring the experience and reported enjoying the chocolate less than the subjects who weren't so well off. They tried a separate experiment, where half the time people were primed with images of money before they tasted the chocolate, and those participants enjoyed the tasting less than a group who had not seen the images, suggesting that just the thought of money is enough to stem our enjoyment of life's simple pleasures. The article notes that, you know, it's kind of hard to define happiness sometimes, but we should try. They note that happiness, in its everyday sense, is akin to pleasure or joy, something we experience in the moment as a result of enjoyable activities. But besides pleasure, there are many different positive emotions, like awe, pride, gratitude that might also contribute to our general mood. When psychologists get involved and talk about happiness, they usually use the term to mean our overall and long-term subjective well-being and life satisfaction. One surprising finding of this research, genetic differences account for about half of the variation in happiness between peoples. 
which I guess in a way means that uh, modern science is getting back to the old idea of body humors. Some people are sanguine, some are melancholy, some are phlegmatic, some are bilious. We certainly associate certain basic attitudes with people, and it appears that at least some of it may be hardwired. Which in an odd way kind of reminds me of a Simpsons episode (laughs) where Marge found herself in a dream sequence in heaven where the Episcopalian session was playing uh, croquet, whereas the Catholics were throwing a fiesta. And perhaps you two have noticed a somewhat different, uh, different attitude between those of, say, Scandinavian background and those of the Mediterranean basin. But uh, no matter what your background, people are exploring what you can do to boost your mood, and there's quite a few things. This article recommends several. Meditation seems to be a, a healthy and, and happy uh, Technique Studies have shown that meditation can relax both your body and your mind with many beneficial effects. Articles suggest that you dispute negative thinking. This is a technique borrowed from cognitive behavioral therapy in which if you catch negative thoughts as they arise, you you ask yourself, is there really a reason to think like this? And can I reframe this in a more positive way? I think that certainly must have some merit. The article suggests you can nurture meaningful relationships with family and friends. It's certainly true that a recent meta-analysis of 148 studies on links between the quantity and quality of social relationships and mortality suggests that being socially isolated is about as bad for your health as smoking cigarettes or drinking excessively. And it's actually worse than being obese. And and, uh, finally, there's kind of a no-brainer. Beware consumerism. Buying more possessions won't make you as happy as spending money on social activities or new and exciting experiences. To quote uh, from my friend uh, Dr. Sean's mom, this is one we should have used as a quote of the day on this program, it's better to do things than to have things. And I got to say, we do take that to extremes in our, in our consumer-driven society. Uh, once, about 20 years ago, and I'm sure I mentioned this in the show at least once in the past, I took a year off and traveled around the world. Wonderful experience. When I came back, a friend of mine looked at me and said, I wish I could afford to do a thing like that. He said that as we walked into his house. I looked at him and said, Ron, what'd you pay for that big screen TV? He looked at me and proudly said, $4,500. I said, oh, well, FYI, all of my tickets combined for all of my travels around the world were less than that. It's better to do things than to have things. We should cite another study from... Different New Scientist magazine, they quoted Daniel Kahneman and Angus Deaton of Princeton University after they sifted through two years' worth of Gallup poll data. They compared what people described as their happiness level against income and found that the more money people earned, the higher their overall life satisfaction. But day-to-day emotional state rose with average income only till about $75,000. After that, more money made no difference. Researchers speculated that uh, people's emotional state may stabilize above 75,000 because they no longer worry about meeting their basic needs. That allows them to settle into whatever level of moment-to-moment happiness their personality permits. And uh, New Scientist followed up on this article with one in January 15th of this year, suggesting that happiness may be catching, as in like a cold, noting that some people may really have infectious personalities. That article by Linda Geddes, cites a study by John Bielenstock of McMaster University in Hamilton, Canada, where uh, 
They looked into the fact that it used to be thought that the immune system and the nervous system were worlds apart. Now it seems the immune system and infections that stimulate it may influence our moods, memory, and ability to learn. I think that's pretty obvious to anyone who ever had finals week while they had a cold. But they note that some strange behaviors like obsessive compulsive disorders may be triggered by infections. And our immune systems may even shape our basic personalities, such as how anxious or impulsive we are. Article cites an example of a boy named Sammy who uh, underwent a radical personality disorder when he got a strep infection. In fact, he developed a rather nasty chronic strep infection that would, uh, would show worsening of his behavior when he was off antibiotics and he would improve when he was put back on them. Research done at the University of Oklahoma suggests that this uh, is not an isolated incident. Researcher Madeline Cunningham spent years investigating behavioral disorders linked to childhood streptococcal infections, including Tourette's syndrome, an, an obsessive compulsive disorder called PANDAS, and a movement disorder, Sydenham's chorea, which is associated with tics and an inability control, to control emotions. Cunningham has shown that at least as far as Sydenham's chorea is concerned, the antibodies we form against one group of streptococcal bacteria can bind the receptors in an area of the brain that controls movement where this, of course, induces some of the tics that you associate with this type of movement disorder. The article goes on to cite some uh, experimental techniques where people dying with cancer would be injected with a certain bacterium, with the idea being stimulate their immune system to destroy tumors. Well, it turned out that that treatment didn't have much effect on the survival of these terminally ill cancer patients uh, as regards their tumors, but it did have an unexpected benefit. Those injected with the bacteria experienced radical improvements in their mood and quality of life. Some of this shouldn't be all that surprising. We know that when we get sick, we feel lethargic and we lose our appetite and can't concentrate very well. It's thought that some of these changes at least are caused by signaling molecules in our body called cytokines, which are released by immune cells in response to stresses and infections. These cytokines are too large to pass freely through the blood-brain barrier, but studies have shown they can enter through naturally occurring leaky regions and through some specific channels. When they get into the brain, they can affect behavior. There is some growing evidence that cytokines associated with inflammation can cause depression. People who get injected with alpha interferon, an antiviral drug which promotes the release of inflammatory cytokines, will generally begin to show symptoms of depression. Scientists theorize that cytokines are trying to shut your body down, sort of get you know in a torpor and depression, so that your body can devote its resources, the energy that it has, to healing, which makes a certain amount of sense. The article goes on to note that besides infections and toxins and stress, obesity can also trigger the release of cytokines, noting that obese people are two to three times more likely to be depressed, and adipose tissue is a potent source of these pro-inflammatory cytokines. I feel pretty certain this is going to be a fruitful area of research. Full speed ahead, gentlemen and ladies. And here's a related story with some uh, curious twists. Article in Scientific American by Veronica Greenwood about curing the common cold notes that we need to be careful what we wish for because in this case the remedy might be worse than the disease. Now, the common cold is actually an infection by many different types of viruses, adenoviruses, coronaviruses, rhinoviruses. These little uh, critters are radically different from one another but in the end produce pretty similar symptoms in us. Article notes that scientists are working toward a vaccine against the rhinoviruses, the group that causes maybe 30 to 50% of colds. 
but they're kind of worried that, it, that even if we succeed in this area, we, we may decide after all that most of us are better off without the wonder drugs and just face the disease. In fact, some diseases that, in fact, some medications that appear to shorten uh, colds maybe by one day, there was one back in 2002, Placonaril, which got on the market for a while, well, appeared to cause a lot of nasal inflammation as a side effect. Of course, most people don't realize that it actually is the body's own inflammatory response to the virus, uh, not the virus itself that causes our cold symptoms, which is why a lot of times we may get a cold, we may be infectious for just a couple of days, and yet you still have the symptoms for a week or two because the body's still repairing all of that uh, overreaction, I guess you'd say, from its inflammatory response. Of course, the question is, what is overreaction and what's appropriate? And it does appear that in some ways having your immune system on high alert has some benefits. The 2009 pandemic of H1N1 flu didn't spread in earnest in France until the cold season passed. Some suggest that uh, uh, colds may provide some temporary immunity to more severe infections. Of course, that, that still remains just a hypothesis. But the question is being asked, if we were able to succeed in eliminating all rhinovirus infections, would other respiratory viruses like influenza move into that niche? Again, interesting stuff. More research is needed. And of course, this study of, uh, of, of the ecology, as it were, of different types of uh, organisms that may attack us uh, has been yielding some steady results in recent years. We've predicted on this program in the past that uh, at some point in the future, probiotics are going to actually become a meaningful and useful term. I, I know that, you know, there probably is some value in taking these products currently being marketed as, quote, probiotic, unquote. But I hate to say it, but uh, most of it's salesmanship and hype. It's been part of the controversy over antibiotic use that since we generally take them in pill form, they just raise hell with our gut Flora, most of the bacteria living inside of us are either doing us some good or certainly doing us no harm. It's long been known that antibiotics uh, can change the, 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 the number and type of, of bacteria that we have inside of us. Recent study on inflammatory bowel syndrome noted that with each course of antibiotics, there may be something of a trade-off between short-term benefits for that inflammatory bowel condition and long-term risks. Researchers at Stanford collected more than 50 stool samples from three people over a 10-month period, which included two courses of the antibiotic Cipro. They used gene sequencing to identify the microbial strains that were present in each person and found that uh, everyone had a unique set of microbial flora, and the composition fluctuated around a certain equilibrium, which was disrupted by each course of antibiotics. In most cases, they found the composition quickly returned to its previous state, but in a few cases, the bacterial species present before treatment were replaced by related but different species. The conclusion, each round of antibiotics is a bit of a roll of the dice, could lead to some lasting changes in that person's gut microbes, and that could cut either way. Article in Discovery magazine of March of last year uh, on this topic of microbes inside of all of us notes that the trillions of microbes that we have in our gut could be the key to fighting disease without the use of antibiotics. A lot of this research has come about because we've got some wonderful abilities to sequence the genes of, of the, the, the things inside of us and there, thereby identify them. Because the fact is that something like only 20% of the bugs that live inside human beings can be grown out on cultures. So we've been missing the majority of them, like 80%. So as we fill in the gaps in our knowledge, we've come up with some surprising data. There are 20 times as many microbes inside of us as there are cells in our body. 
They're keeping score. It's about 200 trillion in an adult human, and each of us hosts at least 1,000 different bacterial species. Article notes that uh, seen through a prism of, of the microbiome, which is all of us, a person is not so much an individual human being as a superorganism made up of diverse ecosystems, each teeming with mic microscopic creatures that are essential to our well-being, which is quite a different portrait from what you see on TV ads for Clorox, isn't it? <laughs> Kills germs. Germs are bad. The article specifically notes that uh, these microbiome studies run directly against the notion in the minds of most people and even some medical researchers that microbes are linked to disease, not health. And of course, not all microorganisms are uh, benign. But when we get a bug that causes us harm, we generally rely on antibiotics. And a lot of people have been troubled uh, by this for quite a while because when you think about it, although we have many pathogens within us, the balance of things that are there are, again, not ca causing us harm and are, in some cases, doing us a lot of good. And it's just the idea, this idea of balance that's sort of coming into focus. We realize that, uh, that a more normal population of microbes in the gut can offset some of the bad actors. To under understand some of this, we study uh, babies, find out that uh, infants acquire about 100 species of microbes in the birth canal. Others come from the mother's skin after birth. By the time the, a baby is six months old, he or she has about 700 species of microflora. By the end of the, of the third year, each child has a microbial community as unique as a fingerprint. So the key in a lot of this is discovering how it is that uh, antibiotic use can upset the balance of the communities in, in all of us and how we can restore that balance uh, as quickly and as effectively as possible. And uh, sad to say, I, gotta, I guess I have to close this section with one... Uh, one article that's, uh, well, it's a bit hair-raising. And I guess, again, I'm going to New Scientist, which is just a damn fine magazine if you have a radio program. And for that matter, if you don't have a radio program, I, I highly recommend it. Article by Anil Ananthaswamy, consultant for New Scientists, asked the question, if a simple enough, though somewhat distasteful procedure can save thousands of lives, why isn't everyone using it? If we're talking about guts gone wrong, and I guess we are, it turns out that a simple fix might be to replace the microbial flora from a healthy person with a healthy gut into someone whose gut has gone haywire. Yes, we're talking about a fecal transplant. Our article starts off by discussing an 89-year-old patient who looked like she was at death's door. She had a terrible infection in her intestines, which colonoscopy revealed. And uh, in desperation, they attempted to take someone else's feces and put it into her gut, which was done based on a transplant from her son. Within 24 hours of receiving an infusion of her son's feces into the colon, the woman's white blood cell had plummeted, the fever had abated, and her mental composure had returned. Before the procedure, she'd been talking to dead relatives. Curiously, this is not something new. Studies back in 1958 in the University of Colorado Medical School in Denver showed recovery within 48 hours of, in four patients whose colons had, had, uh, had uh, been infected. And of course, uh, let's face it, feces is just about nobody's favorite topic. Article notes that uh, doctors still don't fully appreciate what goes on into making the material that we all defecate. In fact, the article notes that for all practical purposes, uh, doctors are hardly any more educated about it than adolescent boys in middle school. 
By the way, I guess it's not commonly known that, that a high percentage of what we defecate is not the food we ate, but contains an awful lot of slough cells and a lot of the aforementioned bacteria living in our gut. And don't quote me on this, but as I recall back in medical school, uh, by weight, it was something like half bacterial remnants. But they looked into it, and it turns out there's possibly 25,000 subspecies of bacteria that feed off the matter that passes through our digestive systems. Taken together, they make up a gigantic interconnected system of cells that some biologists are coming to consider as an organ in its own right. One infection that's made the news a lot is Clostridium difficile. On any given day, when the study was done three years ago, U.S. hospitals would contain more than 7,000 inpatients with C. difficile infections, and there were 300 deaths associated with it. Advocates of fecal transplant insist it doesn't have to be that way. Feces from a donor, which are, you know, in a word, healthier, can be filtered, mixed with saline particles, and through a colonoscope or enema, injected back into the colon where they can save the day. Turns out if you're going to do this, siblings make the best donors. We share 80% of our bacterial flora with our mothers. But it's noted that, in fact, <laughs> quoting the article, any poo will do, so long as the donor has a healthy bowel and has been screened for infections such as HIV and hepatitis. Studies are showing that this has great promise for the treatment of this nasty condition with Clostridium difficile. They quote a researcher saying, we have a therapy that's nearly 100% curative. What the hell are we doing spending millions of dollars on antibiotics for? Well, I have an answer for that. It's just the whole idea of what we're talking about. But you know what? It makes sense biologically, medically. And I think we're going to see a lot more of this in the future. It's going to save lives. Maybe your own. All right, on that note, I think we need a break, don't you? You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We're going to talk about uh, non-medical stuff in the third segment. Stick around. sad story to tell you it may hurt your feelings a bit last night i went into my bathroom and i stepped in a big pile of shaving cream be nice and clean shave every day and you'll always look clean. <laughs> 